Pastor Brandon, joined with Zach. We are uh, pastors at Westside Reformed Church, a URC congregation in Cincinnati, Ohio. Uh, today we want to talk about wisdom and what is wisdom and how is it different from knowledge and how do you get wisdom and you know does the Bible teach us wisdom and where does it teach us wisdom and all. So kind of interacting with some of these questions here I thought would be helpful for today um, and of course there's a, a, a difference in definition between wisdom and knowledge, right? You can have a high IQ, but maybe not be very wise. What, what is wisdom? I'll, I'll start us off by maybe giving some definition of what is wisdom. Wisdom has been defined uh, as, as masterful understanding, as skill in living, as expertise in, 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 in carrying out life and so on and so forth. Uh, one writer said, wisdom is understanding the art of living honestly together with others before God. Um, I think that's a helpful perspective because you're under God, you're before God living wisely uh, with others around you. Another person said um, that wisdom focused on aspects of living um, the very practical art of being prudent, sensible, and skillful so that one might prosper and have good success in life. So living in a way in which you succeed, living in a way that you wisely are able to navigate the world um, to have a better success, a better outcome. And uh, one last author said, Wisdom is centered on both knowing and desiring what is right, which means that wisdom has a Godward ethical thrust as well. So wisdom not merely about action and, and knowing how to act, but also desiring the good and desiring not, you know, not uh, just uh, the, the best path, but the good path. And we see that in the Proverbs, for example. You know, the, the good path juxtaposed to the wicked path. And we need to not only know and, and, and follow the good, but desire the good, because that's part of, part of wisdom. So, Zach, maybe you can give us broad brush, uh, kind of 30,000-foot view. In the Bible, some of the biblical books are called, you know, wisdom books uh, within the Bible. Uh, and so what are those books and what do they teach us broadly speaking? Yeah, I think that the book that everyone's minds are going to want to rush to on this one is the book of Proverbs for, for good reason, of course. Yeah. When we think about how the book of Proverbs opens up and how wisdom is personified as a lady within that book and how there's a summons to wisdom that occurs repeatedly in that book and just the fact that that book is found in all your Gideon Bibles that are in the hotel mm -hmm. rooms all those kinds of things is it's very um, uh, it's, it's probably very familiar to many people and the kind of proverbial statements are in there as well and there's a there's a it's a genre that we're still familiar with I and mean, we think about like you know the early bird catches the worm as a proverbial statement and so it's a genre that we're still kind of, you know, that is living within our, our culture as well. And so the Proverbs is probably the most commonplace where people would turn, of course. 
Uh, but we also have to supplement that with other books because if we do only take the Proverbs and like that's that's wisdom and that's the, almost the only book of wisdom, then we can really have a very skewed understanding mm -hmm. of what wisdom is like in the fallen world. Because Proverbs does present wisdom and cause and effect in a simplistic form, which is how proverbial statements and much wisdom is given in a genre that's overly simplified because of its quest for clarity, its quest for black and white. There's not much gray within Proverbs, but there is much gray in a fallen world. Mm -hmm. And so Proverbs operates in one, in one capacity to give us that black and white cause and effect, what creation ought to have been and what still normally happens. But then that has to be balanced by the other part of wisdom literature, especially when we think about the Old Testament, we're thinking about wisdom books like Ecclesiastes and Job, where the clear-cut cause and effect, you do, good, you do good things, good good happens to you of Proverbs, is nowhere to be found. <laughs> and in Job and Ecclesiastes, you do good and nothing comes from it, is their perspective. Again, because they're talking about the um, how life in a fallen world often occurs uh, under the since this world is over as under the curse uh, of God, and so these kinds of things need to be held in tension with one another because we we want to uh, we have to affirm both. We, if we affirm one or the other, we end up making uh, making a mess of things really within our own hearts and in the hearts of, of other people. So we have to recognize there's two kinds almost of wisdom literature out there that kind of just like help us to hold this intention. And that's probably also worth just noting that uh, the Song of Songs is um, a wisdom text traditionally uh, called, and it really helps to inflame our, uh, our passion and our heart and our love for, for good things. Um, for Yes, for marriage and for our spouse, yes, but for uh, the Lord and for his covenants as well. And for the, the um, uh, Edenic paradise that is being held out to us. Uh, we also would probably want to throw in um, uh, the book of James in the New Testament as well as a sort of a New Testament text with Proverbs. And there are, of course, you know, other uh, wisdom, uh, places where you find wisdom uh, speech uh, within other kinds of books. Obviously, the book of Psalms is one where you have wisdom psalms and those are oftentimes what are called Torah Psalms, Law Psalms, that help direct us to Scripture for wise living. And um, to, so, you know, in, anyway, a bit of a big picture uh, view on wisdom literature within Scripture. And maybe, Brandon, if you want maybe help to go a little bit deeper into some of these texts and some places where it might be helpful for us as we think about uh, wisdom in this, in this episode. Yeah, and I mean, you mentioned that... Some people include other things within the wisdom text of the Bible, bringing in sometimes certain psalms. Uh, there's some who bring in lamentations as wise lamenting, uh, um, evil and sadness and things. So I mean, there, the you know when you talk about you know what are the books, what are the wisdom books of of the Bible? Um, you know there can be some varying answers, but you know I'll walk through Job. Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Songs, and I think those are kind of the the, the core, I guess you could say. Um, one one commentator said, 
Now, the Proverbs address the first level of understanding God, the God of revelation and harmony. The other wisdom books, Job and Ecclesiastes, for example, address the more complex world, the world of God's hiddenness. And that's kind of where Job, you know, is, is entering. In fact, there's one place in Job, Job 23, where Job said, Oh, that I knew where I might find him, that I might come even to his seed. And he's, he's wrestling with the, the, the hiddenness of God and the messiness of life. And, of course, Job's friends were operating on a much more black and white plane. And, you know, they're coming to Job, Job saying, I... I I, I'm, I'm righteous, I've been doing good, you know, and they're saying, well, if you've been doing good, you should be reaping good, and you're not, so that means you're lying, Job. You're actually having all these closet sins, and your life is a wreck, uh, which isn't the case. So, so the, the, the friends are coming at it uh, with a more kind of black and white, proverbial, you know, this is how it ought to be, and, 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 and they're applying that to Job in ways that's really damaging. In fact, the, the Lord rebukes the friends for, for saying that to Job and for pressing Job in those areas. So you could um, say they, they read Proverbs, but they hadn't read Ecclesiastes that's yet, right, right? That's right. They read Proverbs <laughs> and then attacked Job because he is suffering. Um, and yet, you know, the Bible says he was blameless and upright, Job 1.8. It says, blameless, upright man, we're told about, Job 1.8, is now suffering greatly. And the whole book is wrestling with this, right? The righteous sufferer in a fallen world. And you know, it's beautiful throughout the book. There's times when he, when he uh, is calling out for an advocate, calling out for someone to, to mediate, calling out for Christ. I mean, really, a lot of, um, a lot of, a lot of uh, types and shadows speaking about Christ in the book of Job. But you know, he's wrestling with why do, why do righteous people who are doing you know, who are worshiping God, loving God. In fact, when Job begins to suffer, the first thing he does is worship God, right? Um, he, he bows down and he says, the Lord has given, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Uh, God even says in all these things, Job um, um, did not sin. He spoke, he spoke rightly. And, but he is wrestling, right, with why, do, why does suffering come to, to these people, and how come it's not just the wicked who suffer? And some people say, well, God never answers Job. But God does answer Job. Um, he answers Job with a list of rhetorical questions. You know, uh, God could have went to Job and said, well, Job, you know, I know all this stuff, but you don't know it. And you know he could have he could have explained it in some way, but instead he chose a rhetorical way. I'm going to ask questions, and so God comes to Job and says things like, "Where were you when I created the heavens and the earth? Um, do you uh, set forth the times and seasons of life? Uh, who brings forth the um, the the deer's child?" And and so he's he's going on and on about. The world in which God is governing providentially and all the things cosmically down to childbirth of what he's doing and he's showing the, you could say, creator-creature distinction. He's saying, I am God, you are not. And um, he's, 
he's you know doing that in such a way that Job will rest upon him, and he does, I think, at the very end. Job just goes back to, oh, oh yes, you are, and he he is worshiping, and he is he is humbling himself, and he's showing, I think, us how we ought to suffer well in this life, um, and. I think, uh, you know, I'm not the biggest fan of, you know, Soren Kierkegaard and all of his points, but Soren Kierkegaard had, had, a, had a, a great quote on the book of Job here. And Kierkegaard said, In stormy times, when the foundations of existence are shaken, when each moment shudders in anxious expectation as to what is coming next, when every explanation grows dumb in the sight of the wild tumult, and when what is most what is innermost in a person groans in despair and in bitterness of soul screams out to heaven. Then, too, Job still walks alongside the human race and vouches for the truth that there is a victory to be won, vouches for the truth that even if the individual loses his fight, there is nevertheless a God. He's speaking there about the book of Job and how it helps the covenant people of God have wisdom in this matter, walk alongside us in this matter, um, and it helps us not to dis- not to succumb to despair in this matter. So that's the book of Job, you know, um, and the wisdom that we glean there. Um, the book of Proverbs, you know, by contrast, speaks about what ought to be. You know, the natural kind of what is, you know, to use a phrase that Mark Garcia uses, what is the grain of reality? You know, what is the, the, the undercurrent of creation? And, you know, how do we get in tune with that? How do we walk in those ways? Uh, Proverbs develops, you know, the uh, mosaic themes of wisdom and folly, um, life and death, blessing, curses. It speaks about uh, educating for wisdom. Um, and, and I guess you could say the, the normal results of behavior. There's like a normalcy. And so Proverbs is very much, if you get up and you work hard, you will have a bigger profit. You know, that's kind of the, the, the normalcy that's embedded. If you are lazy, you won't have any money. Now, but do we know in, in our world, people who work hard and don't have a lot, and lazy people who have a lot? Yes, there, there are exceptions, right, to, to the Proverbs. Uh, the Proverbs are these you know, pithy statements that gives us ordinary truths, um, uh, about what ought to happen, and the uh, the proverbs also um, have a um, ha- are, are they, they are timeless truths, but they are also oriented, I think, to Christ and to redemption. Um, one one author, uh, O. Palmer Robinson, said these uh, these Old Testament proverbs contain an element that anticipates the pattern of a spiral moving across history toward its climax. True in every age, these proverbial sayings increase in their significance as redemptive history progresses toward its climax. And so the Proverbs uses a lot of different devices to, to, to teach wisdom, uses parallelism where it'll say things in parallel. It might even 
uh, say things kind of that kind of give like a paradox where it'll say, uh, for example, um, answer a fool according to his folly. Don't answer a fool according to his folly. And you're like, well, which one is it? Mm -hmm. And of course, there's a nuance there. There's times in which you do answer hypothetically, and there's times in which you don't want to go on their footing or be sucked into to to their to their uh, worldview. Uh, but it uses metaphor, personification, you know, wisdom is personified, uh, and also typological of Christ. And so, yeah, just a, a great book, the Proverbs is. In fact, ancient Israel used Proverbs as, uh, as one of the, the um, textbooks for, for school and educating people toward, toward wisdom. So Proverbs, a great tool of like, how do we get ingrained with reality? What ought to happen? Natural uh, consequences. Then the other book, you know, you, we, we mentioned about messiness along with Job and speaking about the hiddenness of God is Ecclesiastes. And Ecclesiastes is showing us this fallen world. Um, you could say Ecclesiastes specializes on the complexities of life. And right in the very beginning, chapter 1, verse 14, Ecclesiastes speaks about the vanity, right? Vanity of one's pursuits in, in life. Um, and he talks about, you know, all these things done under the sun, and it's all vanity. And the writer brings, uh, brings up boredom sometimes. There's this boredom. There's meaninglessness. There's despairing over evil. He's bringing up all these complicated things about, this, you know, these things are done day after day, year after year, generation after generation. We're seeing people strive after this. We're seeing people in love. We're seeing people pursue this. And what's, what happens in the end? And uh, there's this kind of... Um, of melancholy, I guess you could say, that the writer brings. But also throughout Ecclesiastes, there's, there's, there's various high points. There's high points where he's pointing back to God, uh, back to the Lord. And, you know, it's almost like one of the purposes of the book is to show what, what, what the fallen creation is like apart from Christ, apart from, apart from the true meaning, right? Um, one commentator said, Ecclesiastes was written to depress you into dependence on our joyous God and his blessed will for your life. So there's a way in which you see, yes, uh, in and of itself, vanity of vanities and, and meaninglessness but god gives the meaning and god gives the purpose and so um yeah i think that that helps balance things out um as well and then finally we come to the song of songs you know it's interesting it's interesting the placement of the song of songs within the biblical canon as well so it's interesting how you know proverbs ends speaking about the godly woman proverbs 31 followed by the book of Ruth. Uh, Ruth kind of personifies this godly woman that is then followed by Song of Songs. And Song of Songs kind of stands as you know, it, this line of virtuous, godly, personified woman. Um, and uh, one commentator said, the wisdom of the song shows forth the idealized pre presentation of mutual love between a man and a woman as it was designed at creation. Um, and even as marriage in the Song of Songs is personified in its idealized form, you could say, 
Um, what is marriage, right? Marriage, Ephesians 5, is about the relationship between Christ and his church. So that means that you know, even as we're seeing the godly woman, even as we're seeing the personified marriage, you know, idealized marriage, uh, we're also seeing Christ. We're also seeing the relationship between that. And the way in which the Song of Songs, if you've ever read it, the way in which, which it is written is very um, impressionistic. You know, you read it and it invokes certain like emotions upon, upon its readers. It, it brings forth passion and desire and joy and intimacy and how that relates to, to our lives. So I think the Song of Songs really does help balance out the wisdom books of the Bible. And so, you know, even within the canon of Scripture, it's just so great, you know, in, in the wisdom of God that he brings these books to bear, that we have not only books telling us what, uh, us what ought to be, but also what is in this fallen fallen world. And, and, and then together they, they harmonize, they come together, and they show us the complexity of the world, they show us wisdom, they show us how to navigate various things. And like you mentioned, you don't want to like, if all we had was Ecclesiastes, <laughs> That would that would that would that would be that would not be very good. If all we had is proverbs, though, again, so we don't want to like take one bulldoze over the other, but they balance out and they and then they round out for us a robust, mature view of of wisdom that is not as black and white as Job's friends wanted to make it, but it's not just ends in despair like you might find if all you read was was Ecclesiastes. So. Um, so, Zach, maybe we could talk about, um, you know, lo- looking at Israel and wisdom, many different uh, civilizations in the, um, in the ancient Near East, mm-hmm. e- Egypt, Mesopotamia, Babylon, that they had a category of sage, somebody who was a wise speaker, somebody who would speak forth wisdom. Uh, maybe we could talk, talk about, you know, was there a sage in Israel? Well, that sounds good, because I think... What that really does for us is it helps pave the way for Christ, of course, as, yeah. as he comes. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I, I think that that, that is um, important to, to, to discuss. And I think that as we think about even just like the, the gospel texts, you begin to see there's sort of a, a way of looking at the Pharisees and the scribes, isn't there? Mm-hmm. As men who were trained, as men who spoke with a degree of authority they came as men who were studied in the law, and the Torah was really the source of, of wisdom, the height of wisdom. And so, you know, as you're pointing out, there's a, there's a real question there as to whether they had a formal view of, of sage or not, because the surrounding world certainly did. And I think it's probably pretty, um, pretty solid footing to say that they had something like what the surrounding um, the surrounding nations had, even if they conceived of it differently and had it more rooted into their inspired text of Torah. Because, it, again, like I said, we, saw, we see these trained uh, men operating and guiding and leading Israel often poorly when Christ arrives, of course. And Christ takes up the mantle of wisdom as well. So what are some of your thoughts on this on this topic? Yeah, <clears throat> so I mean, there, there is a kind of debate, you know, did, did Israel have a sage? Uh, is it very? Is it explicit? Is it not explicit? You know, there's um, 
that there are some people who will talk about maybe Joab, 2 Samuel 14, Ahithophel, 2 Samuel 15, 16, Jonadab, 2 Samuel 13. So there's, you know, throughout people have said, you know, they're operating like a sage would. Well, I think one of the biggest pieces of evidence that Israel had a sage was in uh, Jeremiah 18, 18 where Jeremiah is naming different classes of people, and he talks about prophets, priests, but then he says the wise person. Mm -hmm. He talks about the sage uh, um, mixed in with with these other categories, prophet, priest, sage. Um, And so I think within ancient Israel, you probably had something like like a sage, a professional Mm -hmm. uh, class of people that spoke God's wisdom. It became very important for the Jews, especially in the Second Temple period, because the Jews saw that, you know, as as revelation, as prophecy was beginning to die down, uh, kind of transmitting the wisdom and knowledge that we already had became much more uh, prominent. So instead of looking for the next prophet of God, they're looking for the person who understands what God has already written and is going to now expound that to the people of God. Uh, you know, one of the big uh, one of the big sages during this era, this era is Simon the Just, um, and you know, of course, for the Jews, right? I mean, the Old Testament kind of that stopped. There's not been this ongoing revelation for the Jewish community. And so, you know, they put a high stock then in the sage and the wise person to speak this. For the Christian, however, um, we would say prophecy and revelation pick back up with Christ. And we have the New Testament and we have other writings that, uh, that, that, um, that, that, that the Jews do not have. In fact, we see Christ as sage, you know, as you were, you were um, hinting at. Uh, One author, Ben Witherington, wrote a book about Jesus the sage, and he said, What makes sage the most appropriate, comprehensive term for describing Jesus is that he either casts his teaching in a recognizable, sepential form, aphorisms, beatitude, riddle, or he uses prophetic adaptations of sepential speech, the narrative, mashal, and so on. So he's using a lot of wisdom uh, and sage-like sayings as he's as he's speaking, and so he is. I mean, even the Bible says, right? He he became to us wisdom from God. He is wisdom. He is our wisdom. So uh, yeah, all that all all that saying, you know, it climaxes, I think, in Christ being the final, you know, prophet, priest, king. But also, we can very much see him as teacher and sage. That's right. Um, so maybe we can close Zach, speaking about you know, ways in which the Bible speaks about wisdom. What, what what are some explicit statements in the Bible about about wisdom? Well, well, I mean, my mind as you're talking about Christ, there goes immediately to First Corinthians, the close of First Corinthians of Christ becoming for us. Uh, wisdom, along with righteousness and, and sanctification, redemption, but that he is uh, wisdom, and also just the the related <clears throat> um, description within First Corinthians one of how what the world thinks is wisdom is really folly with God, but then what the world looks at as looks at as foolishness, for example, the cross of Christ is actually wisdom and power. And so I think that we really see within Christ's person and work the um, climax of wisdom. I mean, this is certainly related to him being the Logos, the Word um, that stands behind the Scriptures, the Word. 
But uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think that's probably one place where I immediately go in thinking about uh, wisdom is the, the First Corinthians 1. So how about you? Yeah, I mean, I mean, just throughout the way the Bible speaks about wisdom is so interesting. You know, like uh, Romans sixteen twenty seven, God is wisdom. So, you know, wisdom is not some category outside of God that God is somehow subservient to this, this category. But no, it's like God is wisdom wisdom uh christ is as you mentioned wisdom and so we have to understand like god is wisdom and you know uh, psalms 104 you know in wisdom god made the world so god is wisdom in wisdom he makes the world the world also interesting is in in proverbs one of the personifications of wisdom you know is pointing is, is typological of christ you know we, we often identify wisdom in the opening chapters of Proverbs as speaking about Christ. Christ is wisdom, and here um, God made uh, the world through wisdom, in wisdom, um, kind of paralleling what Paul says, that all things were made uh, for him and through him and to him. And so, yeah, I mean, the creation of the world. Mm -hmm. Any other text in the Bible? Yeah, I mean, we think about um, not just the... Christ is that climax of wisdom in the biblical narrative and God being wisdom and making the world in wisdom. He shares that wisdom with us, of course, and that wisdom is a gift that comes down uh, from God, who is the Father of lights. And so you know, James 3, I think, is a, a, a key text here. As you think about that, that gift of wisdom, because you know we, we need it, and so then the question becomes, how do we get it? Where do we look? And, of course, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, right? Uh, it has to be still given, and that's a gift from God by His grace. And so we don't want to separate wisdom from that communion with God right. and that uh, life before His face. You mentioned earlier in a couple of your definitions that some of those um, definitions were very proactive in making sure it wasn't just about right living as if right. we can separate living from communion with God. Right. And so I think that's a very key a key part of this. Yeah, I mean, so. one of the things the Bible wants to do is link as closely as as, like, as it can wisdom with God. Yes. Um, God is wisdom. Wisdom is not just yeah, like this kind of general thing out there, right? And and we all we're all doing it. It's like, well, no, God is wisdom. He gives wisdom. In order to get wisdom, you begin with fear. fear the fear of Yahweh is the beginning of wisdom, and it's in Christ all the treasures of wisdom are found. Colossians two three. So if you want wisdom outside of Christ, you're not going to find it. Mm -hmm, right. you gotta, you got to go to the who has the treasure of it all, and that's Christ uh, himself. And you know, we're bid throughout Scripture, you know, pray, pray for wisdom. Pray that God will grant you wisdom. Uh, and that's you know, one, of the, one of the things the Bible commends about Solomon. Mm -hmm, absolutely. Yeah. Well, we hope some of these reflections have been helpful for you as we embark on this uh, path in pursuit of wisdom. And uh, we hope that uh, if this has been helpful, uh, give us a uh, give us a, a positive review of our uh, podcast. Subscribe, share. We'd love that. Uh, reach out to us as well. Let us know if um, certain things we're hitting on are helpful for you, or maybe you have some ideas for future episodes. We'd love that. Uh, but until next week, this is the uh, Cincy Reform Podcast, a podcast of Westside Reform Church. And I'm Brandon, or I'm Zach. This is Brandon. I'm confused. We'll see you later. <laughs> bye bye. <laughs>